Hey everyone, my name is Jenna Spinelli and I host and produce a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. If you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll like our show too. Every episode examines a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. Sometimes it's big picture issues like neoliberalism or demagoguery, and other times it's more on the ground topics like ranked choice voting and how local news deserts are democracy deserts too. Some of our previous guests include Jonathan Haidt, Andrew Sullivan, and even Wynton Marsalis. So I hope you'll check out Democracy Works. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic. And I'm Abraham Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and faculty member in the Department of Political Science here at James Madison University. And I'm Ryan Ritter, an undergraduate democracy fellow at JMU Civic, majoring in history and international affairs. In this episode, we talk with Congressman John Sarbanes about what it will take to secure voting rights for every American and restore confidence in elections and government. Congressman Sarbanes chairs the Democracy Reform Task Force, which has assembled H.R. 1, also called the For the People Act, to reform and strengthen our democracy. Enjoy the episode. All right, Congressman Sarbanes, uh, I was wondering what are the major tenets of the For the People Act and what major issues does it aim to address? My goodness, it's it's got a lot of different interlocking components, and it was built that way largely to respond to grievances we were hearing from people out in the country for years now. So I like to say that the bill kind of sprung from the appetite in the country to strengthen our democracy. People care deeply about American democracy. They want to see it fortified. In this moment, they recognize that it needs a lot of care and attention. And so we were listening carefully over the last few years. And what came back to us, and that then took the form of various proposals that we've assembled into the For the People Act, were about five or six major areas of concern out there in the public. So the first thing that we were hearing from people is this idea of you know, every two years when it comes time to vote, why do we have to run an obstacle course in America to get access to the ballot box? And aren't there things we can do to make it more convenient for people to exercise their freedom to vote? So there's a whole set of proposals in the bill that are designed to do exactly that, to make registration more convenient, to ensure that people can access the franchise without difficulty. Many of those provisions, by the way, written by the late John Lewis. He introduced something for years called the Voter Empowerment Act that we've incorporated into the bill. So voting is a key thing. People wanted to see those changes. We got a lot of input from folks who don't like the idea of politicians choosing their voters instead of the other way around. And that's how people view partisan gerrymandering. So we've got provisions to address that. Ethics and accountability is a real theme. The public wants you to behave yourself when you go to Washington, either to serve as 
a lawmaker in Congress or in the executive branch or in the judicial branch for that matter. So we want to have a code of ethics that really governs behavior in Washington. That's really important. Pushing back against the the interference that we see sometimes from foreign actors, protecting the infrastructure of our democracy is also something that people feel uh, very strongly about. And then the last thing, very important, is there's deep cynicism in the country about the influence that money has on our politics, particularly big money and special interests. And so we have a whole set of provisions designed to push back on that influence and ensure that the voice of everyday Americans is the one that carries the day in Washington and determines our public policy priorities. So you put all that together, you have a big bill, comprehensive reform and strengthening of our democracy. And while there's a lot of bad news in terms of this stampede across the country towards voter suppression and the renewed influence of big money out there, the good news is we actually have a bill that can respond to a lot of that and shut it down and make sure that the voice of the people uh, is the one that carries the day. Thank you, Congressman. H.R. 1 would become the most sweeping voting rights legislation since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Can you tell us why now is the time in American history to introduce such broad reforms? Well, a couple of things. One is um, we certainly, as I mentioned a moment ago, we see this effort at the state level to throw obstacles in the way of people's opportunity to vote. I mean, it's breathtaking the extent of that suppression campaign. So in, in that sense, the timing is, is, is right to bring forward a bill that can push back on that and ensure that we have baseline standards that govern how people vote in this country and that we can frankly try to bring ourselves closer to what should be the gold standard in terms of voting when you compare us to our peer nations. Unfortunately, we're far from that. Here we are 50 years after John Lewis shed blood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, marching for the right to vote. Uh, and we still can't seem to get it right in so many places. So we wanna meet the threats, the new threats we're seeing to the franchise by having these reforms that really ensure that kind of baseline gold standard for what it means to vote in America. The other reason it's so important is that in November, we really saw the American people fight their way to the ballot box, overcome many obstacles that were thrown in their way in order to pull our democracy back from the brink, arguably. And now we've seen that what we pulled back from the brink is quite fragile. The attack on the Capitol on January 6th, I think showed people in the country that. But if the American people had it within them to force their um, themselves to get up and get past these obstacles and, and, and cast their vote in November in order to save our democracy, then 
As lawmakers, we have, I think, a commensurate responsibility to step up and pass pass laws that can make that whole process work better for Americans. And if we could deliver that in time for the next moment when people are going to be showing up at the polls, which is in the 2022 midterm elections, that would be a very powerful statement back to the public that we respect your partnership with us to lift up our democracy. And we're doing all we can uh, to fulfill our obligation in that respect. And that's what's really motivating here is the American people care deeply about this democracy. Um, We need to show as their representatives that we care just as deeply and we're ready to make powerful change to ensure that the democracy is strong as we move ahead. Thank you so much, Congressman Sarbanes. Um, you you alluded to this in, in your last um, answer, but um, I wanted to follow up a little bit more about what we see happening across the country with more than 360 bills, restrictive voting rights bills being introduced um, into 47 different state legislatures. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the provisions in H.R. 1 uh, would protect voting rights through federal legislation for individuals living in Georgia and other states where voting access and voting rights are being restricted. Um, and then also, how do you see um, the you know potential conflict playing out as a result of differences between state and federal laws? Well, let me start with the second one. I mean, the Congress has authority under the Constitution's time, place, and manner clause to regulate federal elections across the country. So we can set these baseline standards for how federal elections are conducted. That's the sort of mechanism and leverage we have to establish these baseline standards. And what we know is that as a practical matter, if those requirements are in place for federal elections, states will need to put the same requirements in place for state elections because as a practical administrative and logistical matter, um, they can't run two completely separate election systems within their states. So we have the authority when it comes to federal elections and then that creates leverage to encourage the states to put those standards in place broadly. So I think we're on very solid ground there. I expect there to be challenges to this bill from all from all sides potentially if if we um, can get it passed. But I think we're on very strong ground when it comes to the constitutionality of, of what we're trying to achieve. In terms of these baseline standards themselves, If you look at what's happening across the country, it's essentially Republican state legislators who are trying to limit the many options that people use to vote in the 2020 election. As you know, we saw tremendous uptake of mail-in balloting 
across the country. We saw more use of early voting across the country. We know that uh, the use of drop boxes for the return of mail ballots, et cetera, that increased. So what happened in 2020 was the average voter out there now has available to them a lot of good options, as long as they're preserved and protected, for making sure that their voice is heard and that they can cast their ballot. What these state law efforts in many places are trying to do is eliminate the full menu of options or severely uh, limit the usefulness of some of those options. So for example, in some of these states, they want to either pull back the no excuse absentee ballot opportunity that existed in that state and say, no, you have to have an excuse in order to do that. It has to be a sort of for cause kind of thing or we're gonna make it available, but we're only gonna make it available for um, a certain age group within the population. Um, so that represents pulling back that opportunity. Or yes, we'll allow for mail-in balloting, but in order to get your mail-in ballot, you've gotta submit all kinds of paperwork and documentation that goes well beyond what anyone would regard as reasonable. So it ends up being an impediment. In other places, the opportunity for early voting instead of being expanded is being pulled back by these state laws. We saw this in Georgia where the initial um, proposal was to eliminate early voting on Sundays. Well, that can sound on its face like it's a neutral um, measure, but in fact what it does is it means the whole souls to the polls program, which is very important within the African American community is suddenly undermined because people aren't able to vote um, on Sundays during early voting. So there's a lot of shenanigans and mischief that we've seen. All of it's about sort of limiting these opportunities or removing them completely from the, the basket of options that voters could have. And what we wanna do with the For the People Act is put in place across the country baseline standards so those options are preserved. No excuse absentee ballot voting everywhere, a minimum of 15 consecutive days of early voting everywhere, opportunities for automatic voter registration, same-day registration, online registration everywhere in the country. That's the way it should be, and that's why we're so um, emphatic that we need to get this this bill over the finish line again so that when people show up in 2022, they have confidence in their democracy. I wonder if I can ask two follow-up questions here. The first um, about, you know, how H.R. 1 might redress the way in which Shelby versus Holder gutted a lot of the Civil Rights Act um, provisions. Um, and then also, I wonder, you know, how, you know, we're seeing a rise, um, you know, especially I'm thinking about Arizona in this moment, uh, Maricopa County, where uh, they're bringing in third party, quote unquote, audits to look at the elections. And, you know, these companies have um, th the company that's been brought in to do the so-called audit has zero experience in election work. Um, 
you know, how how can can this federal legislation sort of work around the way we see the the rise in in the pushback, including um, you know from these these outside groups that might question election results? Well, in in a, in a kind of um, thirty thousand foot sense, the more confidence over time you build in the electorate about the overall system of voting. And that comes from an that's experiential, largely. The the less, I guess, receptive um, or or susceptible to these notions of voter fraud um, and sort of you know electoral mischief and all the rest of it, um, the public will be. We know that there are many in the country that are continuing to embrace what's come to be known as the sort of the big lie that that the election was stolen uh, by by Joe Biden, you know, who stole the election from President Trump. And there's still a lot of people out there subscribing to that. The only way ultimately you begin to get back to some um, common shared view that the electoral system is functioning well is if you strengthen all of the parts of its infrastructure. That can include sort of, you know, post-election auditing, but it has to be done by a credible group, like, you know, the Election Assistance Commission that we set up uh, years ago uh, to administer grants related to election infrastructure. They gather data and so forth. So, you know, it's important to, to take a look at our election infrastructure kick the tires on it, vet it. We have provisions included in HR1, S1, the For the People Act that would do that, but would do it in a responsible way with accredited groups um, that are well vetted. So you don't have these kind of pop-up efforts occurring like the ones we're seeing in Maricopa County and other places that are really just part of a larger agenda to, to, to continue undermining people's confidence in the vote back in 2020, but has the effect of undermining their confidence going forward. So all of this, I think, comes from the general cynicism that's developed in the public around our politics, around government, around who's calling the shots. And if people feel like the system is not on their side, they're much more receptive to conspiracy theories, the notion that, you know, somebody's trying to um, undermine their interests, etc. And the way back from that is to make people feel like we are on their side, that their voice is the one that counts, that special interests aren't playing some inside game that undermines the priorities of the average person out there. That's why this bill is so comprehensive, because it's not enough to be able to cast your vote if you still feel like the people you vote for go to Washington and get captured by special interests, then you're still going to be cynical. But if you have a confidence that the system's working for you at all points along the way, um, then you're not going to buy in as quickly uh, to these notions that somehow there's a conspiracy afoot. So I think it just gets back to the imperative around this broad, uh, comprehensive reform package. In terms of the Shelby case, 
you're right to point to that because that's the case that basically unwound uh, important pre-clearance provisions in the 1965 Voting Rights Act, where essentially in certain parts of the country, largely in the South, but places where there been, there's historic record of discrimination um, based on race when it comes to voting, in those places, if you were to propose some new change to voting rules or procedures, you had to first get permission from the U.S. Um, Justice Department. Well, they took that pre-clearance opportunity away. That was struck down by the Supreme Court. And as a result, um, as a result of that, uh, the pre-clearance doesn't exist at this point. So we need to restore that so we have that extra level of protection. Unfortunately, we can't undo the laws that have already been passed with a new upgrade of the Voting Rights Act because these things have already happened, so the pre-clearance doesn't stop them from happening. What can stop them is H.R. 1 S. 1 because it can establish these standards that say whatever the state may have put in place um, as a result of this activity we're seeing over the last two, three months, if that doesn't align with the new standards that we are requiring as part of the For the People Act, then those state level standards um, will not apply. Um, once you set up this new system. So we need the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which is the upgrade of the uh, Voting Rights Act that would respond to the Shelby decision. And we're very much pushing for that, but it's on its own timeline because you have to build a record there for the Supreme Court. And as I say, that doesn't fix the laws that have already been passed, whereas the For the People Act very much can do that. And that's why we're pushing so hard for it in this moment. Thank you so much, Congressman. And just to shift the topic a little bit, um, one of the most acclaimed goals of H.R. 1 is to end the presence of dark money in politics. And that refers to undisclosed spending by nonprofit organizations and corporations. How does such spending negatively affect our political institutions? And how does H.R. 1 plan to address it? Well, this spending is just in some ways taken over. The, the dark money spending has taken over our politics in recent years. It's created fear and, and uh, intimidation um, in, in lawmakers who have to worry that if they cast a vote that doesn't meet the standard of some dark money interest group, that suddenly you know millions of dollars will be spent to try to defeat them in the next election. So you have people, in a sense, walking around um, worried that at any moment there'll be kind of a drone strike from one of these these dark money groups. That's not that's not a good atmosphere in which to to do your job as a lawmaker. So creating more transparency and disclosure of where that money is coming from. Uh, can create a pretty good deterrent effect 
to push back on some of that spending. We've seen that at the state level where these robust disclosure requirements in some places um, have exposed that kind of spending um, in state elections. And the result has been in many places that that spending decreases because frankly, the, the people who are sourcing it don't, don't want to be out there in the public eye. We want to bring a similar accountability to how that money flows into federal elections and affects federal policy. So we have included in the For the People Act very robust disclosure requirements. Essentially, anyone who's spending $10,000 or more in the political space at the federal level would have to disclose uh, who they are. And we would trace that all the way back to the point of origin. So you couldn't sort of hide behind different layers of, of camouflage. So that's gonna be, I think, a very, very important part of this reform bill in terms of pushing back on the big money spend out there, which was unleashed, as you know, by the Citizens United case over 10 years ago. That's really when the money started to flow into our politics in a kind of torrential way. But there's other reforms as well that are really important on this topic. One is to fix the broken Federal Election Commission, which has been deadlocked for years. It's completely dysfunctional. Its job, it's supposed to be sort of the, the cop on the beat that blows the whistle when when the money actors in, in our politics cross the lines, but because it's gridlocked, it can never do that. So basically super PACs and other money interests can operate um, with impunity, even when they are in effect breaking the law. Uh, so we need to fix the FEC and, and we have a whole uh, part of the bill that's designed to do that, I think. It'll be very, very effective. And then one other thing I'll mention, because it's very close to my heart, I've been working on this for 15 years, is standing up a new way of funding campaigns that's based on small donor contributions and matching funds. <clears throat> and the reason that's so important is because even before the Citizens United case, we had this problem where a lot of the money that gets raised in campaigns by candidates is coming from special interests and sort of well-heeled, deep-pocketed donors. And when that happens, you tend to lean in their direction when it comes time to make policy and away from what the broad public wants to see. So that means PACs, lobbyists, special interests call the shots. This is why the public is so cynical because insiders stop us from you know, making progress on fair tax policy because, you know, Wall Street is calling the shots there with all the money that they're spending. Uh, it's been impossible to, to reduce the cost of prescription drugs because the pharmaceutical industry has so much influence in Washington. Three lobbyists for every member of Congress. We can't make the progress on gun safety that so many Americans want to see because the gun lobby has so much power on Capitol Hill. So if we go come up with a different way 
of funding campaigns where everyday Americans were the sort of drivers of it, that they were the power behind campaigns. Um, it could make a huge difference in terms of public policy. And we propose in the bill a small donor matching system that would match uh, contributions of $200 or less, six to one, for candidates that agree to do the right thing and lean towards the public. And that would allow candidates to run, compete, and win without having to go hat in hand to special interests. And I think the results would be powerful in terms of uh, what it would mean for public policy. It would also, by the way, and we've seen this at the state and local level where these systems are in place, it would increase the diversity of the candidate pool because a lot of folks who should be able to run and represent their communities, they don't have deep pockets themselves. They don't know people with a lot of money. They can't afford to run a competitive campaign um, unless you create this new system of, of small donor matching. So it would, it would increase the diversity of candidates. And ultimately, that's what you want. You want a diverse electorate to be able to show up at the polls every two years to cast their vote. And you want a diverse set of candidates to appear on the ballot that those voters are showing up um, to vote for. That's how you ensure full participation in political society. And that's what we're aiming to do with the bill. So fighting the money and the moneyed interest in Washington is probably the hardest thing we're trying to achieve here, but and it upsets the status quo, but it's absolutely critical if people are going to uh, feel like their government works for them. I want to shift from money and politics to the topic of gerrymandering. In doing so, really reminds us of how sweeping HR1 really is. The presence of partisan gerrymandering, you know, the process of drawing districts to favor one political party over the other has plagued American politics for a long time. Congressman, how does HR1 plan to end gerrymandering once and for all? Is it reasonable to assume that this is even possible? It's absolutely possible. And it's, it's pretty straightforward. What HR1 would do is it would require every state in the country to set up an independent redistricting commission that would be put together according to a, a whole set of objective criteria. This is modeled after commissions that we've seen um, set up at the state level in some places, but not all. So for example, the state of California has had a commission for some time and there are other states as well. So we're kind of borrowing on that template and saying to every state, you have to set up a commission that is independent, that will draw these district lines, and that will give the public a greater sense that this system is fair and representative. Because as you point out, partisan gerrymandering has been around for centuries, really. But particularly in the last, I'd say, 10 or 20 years, it's become much more extreme, and this is because uh, computers have allowed for a much more sort of a detailed and refined way of drawing the lines and putting different precincts together to satisfy political goals of the map makers. 
And um, the result has been that the makeup of Congress doesn't really accurately reflect the vote out there in the country because of how this gerrymandering occurs. And we want to get back to where, I mean, this is a representative democracy. That's what it is. So you want to make sure that the representation in the United States House of Representatives is as accurately and fairly reflective of the will of the people out in the country as it can possibly be. The only way to do that is to fix partisan gerrymandering. And that's what and that's what this bill would do. Now, you know, we're on the front end of the 10 year period that is, will be governed by the next set of maps. So getting it done in this uh, cycle is critical. And that's just another reason, along with the importance of being able to implement these voting reforms, that we have to get this bill passed sooner rather than later in order to make um, a real difference for our democracy and do so um, you know, in the near, middle, and long term. Another area that HR1 will address is ethics reform. Um, and we just recently spoke with Walter Schaub, former director of the Office on Government Ethics um, here on Democracy Matters. And he acknowledged that the provisions in HR1 provided some steps in the right direction, but recommended further mechanisms to strengthen government oversight, transparency, and accountability. Um, I believe he also testified um, before your, your committee. Um, I wonder if you could speak to how Congress and the administration might use H.R. 1 to pave a path for further ethics reform uh, uh, in government. Sure. And Walter Schaub was a terrific witness and his perspective has been really important in terms of the ethics provisions contained within H.R. 1, among them strengthening the toolkit and the enforcement authority that the Office of Government Ethics, which he used to lead, has. Um, now, I, I agree with him. I think that what we're trying to do is create a sort of baseline and a foundation with all of the various ethics reforms that are contained within the bill that we can continue to build on as we move forward. And in some respects, that can describe many other parts of the bill as well. We're trying to get that foundation in place for what our democracy looks like and how it operates. And then there's always refinements and improvements you can make as you move forward. I mean, the process of democracy is a continuing experiment where hopefully it's it's being strengthened um, every single day. So, um, you know, his input and the perspective that we need to restore a culture of ethics in Washington is really important and is something that um, we incorporated into the ethics portion of the of the H.R. 1 S1 for the People Act. Um, and I think will put us in a very good place as we move forward. You know, ethics really is a cultural concept. And there's, there's a certain amount that you can do by statute or regulation to encourage people and um, require people to abide by certain ethical standards. But you're also somewhat reliant on people who occupy these offices. I mean, President Trump set the the ethical standard or the lack thereof even before he was in office and sworn in by saying, President of the United States cannot have a conflict of interest. Well, 
that may be technically correct um, under the applicable rules. But what he was saying was he was making a cultural statement to all the people that were working for him, which is essentially go cross the lines if you can get away with it. So we need a combination of obviously electing ethical leaders on the one hand, and then creating a set of standards that, you know, build this larger context of what it means to act ethically and in the public interest. We can combine those two things, um, what we deliver for the public um, is what they expect. I mean, it always strikes me that Abraham Lincoln continues to poll highest among the American people um, of all the presidents who've ever served in the Oval Office. And the reason is because he was honest, Abe, and he was seen as having this sort of ethical compass. Now you wonder how we've gotten some of the leaders we have, if that is the expectation of the American people, but that's on us. That's on us as lawmakers to, to show that we're ready to act ethically and in a sense, put in place guardrails for our own conduct. And if we do that, I think the public will have more faith and confidence in how we're operating and we can begin to restore um, some sense of, you know, investment in our democracy on the part of the average person. So the ethic, the ethics reforms in this bill are really, really important, you know, and it's, it's how, how do lobbyists behave? How do lawmakers behave? Members of the executive officials, what codes of ethics do we need? How do we police conflicts of interest? Etc. There's many, many components to it. If we can get those in, in place, then it helps to build that, that ethical culture I'm referring to as we move forward. Congressman Sarbanes, you've outlined for us many important provisions that HR 1 intends to address. I want to talk about the politics of something like this. We know that many prominent Republican officials such as minority leaders Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy have expressed concerns that the For the People Act was written merely to make or extend gains for Democrats in nationwide elections. How do you address these concerns and how do you envision H.R. 1 benefiting all Americans? Well, first of all, Let's just talk about the voting side of things. If you look back at the 2020 election, it wasn't just Democrats or even independents that used mail-in voting, early voting, automatic voter registration where it existed. It was Republicans as well in the millions. So I look at that and I say, the average American, whatever their political stripe, likes to have good options. For voting we ought to we ought to get to a place where you get up on the morning of the day you've decided to vote whether that's going to be filling out an oval on an absentee ballot sitting at your kitchen table or going to an early voting center or showing up on election day you should be able to anticipate 
that day without having to make four or five contingency plans because you're worried that something might go wrong. And that benefits Americans of all political stripes. The other thing I would say is that both parties benefit if they have to be accountable to a diverse and broad electorate. Because then you have to go win based on your ideas and your proposals. I think one of the problems that the Republican Party, today's Republican Party is suffering from is that they've used a playbook for winning elections over in the recent years that's based on sort of shrinking and manipulating the makeup of the political town square. And that can be done through voter suppression, partisan gerrymandering, but it means you're not really accountable to a broad and diverse audience out there. And when that's the case, you become less interested or motivated in policing extreme elements and voices within your own party. Because you don't have to worry about that from an accountability standpoint. And so those voices get more traction, and we've definitely seen that within the, within the Republican Party. Alternatively, if you are, if you do need to be more accountable in terms of the electorate, in terms of where big money is being spent, where disinformation is being, um, you know, distributed, etc., then you have an incentive to actually clean up your act <laughs> and to start thinking about how do I go make the case based on the strength of my ideas, and and cleaning up your act includes maybe pushing some of those extreme voices out of your own party. So I actually think that the bill will benefit all Americans because it'll benefit both parties by respecting and lifting up the voice of everyday Americans out there and creating accountability on the part of candidates who want to go make the case to that broad American audience. That's why this is so important and that's why, to be honest, um, it's so well supported across the political spectrum. I mean, yes, Republicans in Washington like McCarthy and McConnell and others are leaning hard against it because they worry about it undermining this minoritarian power structure that they've built over many, many years. But when you go out and talk to rank and file Republicans in the country, they support these things. I mean, a majority of Democrats, independents and Republicans favor the bill. And then when you break out the various components of it, you get strong support there as well. No surprise, because as I said at the beginning of this talk, we built the, the legislation based on listening carefully to what Americans' grievances were. So there is broad support um, for this bill, and there's nothing controversial in it, really. The only controversy is that it's taken us this long to get to a point where we might actually get it enacted into law and bring these changes to bear. Congressman Sarbanes, before we close, we do have one final question that we ask of all of our guests on Democracy Matters, and it's what would you do to strengthen our democracy? Well, I, I think I probably would have done a really poor job in this podcast if we didn't get to the end of it with everybody listening, knowing that the thing I would do to strengthen our democracy is to get the 
for the People Act passed in the next six weeks. Um, that is absolutely the priority. If we can do that, um, then I think it really creates that foundation that I talked about so we can continuously improve and strengthen our democracy going forward. I want to say again that Americans cherish their democracy. They really do. And I think it's created a, a deep um, anxiety among a majority of people in this country to see how fragile it is in this moment. I believe that if we can get this bill passed, it's a powerful statement to Americans, again, of all political stripes, that there's a way back to strengthening our democracy. And that to do that, we need this full partnership between the American people and their representatives. And Americans showed they're ready to step into that partnership with with what they did in, in November of 2020. This is the opportunity for their representatives to show that we're ready to stand up for the democracy in the same way by getting this very, very important piece of legislation passed in the next six weeks um, and onto President Biden's desk. So we're gonna keep pushing as hard as we can. Uh, we know that this is uphill in the sense that we are definitely climbing a mountain, but we can see the summit through the mist. Uh, we know that as you climb higher, the winds blow harder and the oxygen gets thinner. And we feel that every day, but that means we're getting closer to the top. So we're going to keep this fight uh, going and hopefully we'll reach the, the top of the mountain um, in the next few weeks and be able to make that powerful statement back to the American people. Congressman John Sarbanes, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters and for sharing your insights about how H.R. 1, the For the People Act, will secure voting rights for every American and restore confidence in elections and government. 